thank you all for joining us today. I have muted everyone's line for call quality. If you have any questions for the speakers, you can press star six to unmute yourself. Uh, today's call is hosted by the Mediation and the Bankruptcy Litigation Committees. Uh, Judy Weicker, Newsletter Editor of the Mediation Committee, and Ferve Ozturk, Newsletter Editor for the Bankruptcy Litigation Committee, will be leading today's calls. Uh, Judy, you can go ahead and get started. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. As Martha just said, I'm Judy Weicker. I'm the co-chair of the Mediation Newsletter Committee, and I'm joined by Ferve Ozturk, who is the chair of the Bankruptcy Litigation Newsletter. And we're here with Ed Dobbs, who is our featured speaker. Uh, just briefly, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Mediation Committee, I wanted to let you know a little bit about what we've achieved in our short four years since we've been relaunched. Many of the members of the committee have participated in the ABI St. John's 40-hour bankruptcy mediation training program, which is offered in December. If you have an interest in learning more about mediation, look for that. And it's generally for experienced attorneys and judges. In addition, our committee has put together model rules for mediation, so feel free to look at that on the ABI website. And we've recently updated our mediation handbook for the third edition. Um, as part of this call, we had put together a joint newsletter, which we had surveyed our joint membership, and we hope that it will continue a dialogue between our respective committee members. Uh, the survey results did show that our two committees were much aligned, um, especially for the criteria for selecting a mediator, also, the optimal timing to send a disputed matter to mediation. There were very similar views. And in addition, we asked the mediation committee to provide information that they find useful to be provided prior to the mediation, which will become a good resource and checklist for you. And then finally, we talked about the best practices and do's and don'ts for advocates and mediators, which touches much upon ethics. And hence, we will be turning this over to Ed Dobbs for much of the call. But prior to that, Ferve, would you like to add anything? Oh, certainly. Welcome, everyone. My name is Ferve Osterk. I'm the newsletter editor for the Bankruptcy Litigation um, Newsletter uh, for, for the committee here. You know, this is the first time that the Bankruptcy Litigation Committee has joined with a, uh, another committee to do a joint newsletter, so we're very excited about the results. Um, we actually solicited um, uh, responses from both the mediation committee members and the litigation committee members um, for the, their views on mediation for the survey, so we, you know, we did end up getting a fairly robust response, and we're excited to go through those uh, with you folks on the line as well. Uh, one quick plug, um, the Bankruptcy Litigation Committee, um, we're, we're, we're putting on a seminar uh, tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Um, it uh, circle, revolves around 503B9 claims, uh, 503B9 claims from the trenches. Um, it's actually free. Um, so, you know, quick way, free of cost, to uh, get an update on 503B9 claims. Uh, you'll just need to go to the events um, site for the ABI, click on there, and you can register from there. So, Judy, do you want to get us started with the survey results? 
Well, I think I did an overview. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? I think that for the survey results, please refer to the newsletter. We uh, have a written summary of the highlights. Um, in addition, I think at this time we should probably turn it over to Ed. And his outline for his presentation on ethics is also in the joint newsletter. So if you have not done so, please go to the newsletter and tap the link and you'll see the outline there. Um, at this point, I, I would like to introduce Ed. Um, I think if you were at the ABI annual meeting, you had the pleasure of hearing Ed speak on the panel on mediation. That was the joint um, panel of both the Mediation Committee and the Bankruptcy Litigation Committee. And this newsletter and idea followed through that. Um, Ed has been very active in mediation for many years and is an instructor at that ABI St. John's mediation course I mentioned. He's also been a mentor to many people who are up and coming in the mediation space. And he was a contributor to the mediation handbook uh, that should be coming out shortly um, this year. So please look for that. And with that, I will turn the program over to Ed. Well, thank you, Judy, very much, and good afternoon, everybody. The topic that I've been asked to address is standards of conduct for advocates and mediators in the settlement of bankruptcy disputes. And I'm going to start first with a discussion of some of the ethical considerations and guidelines for party advocates in bargaining, uh, and then turn to those that may be applicable to a mediator. And feel free at any time uh, to interrupt, ask questions, make comments. I will try to reserve some time at the end to uh, respond to uh, questions or for people to just uh, weigh in with their own thoughts on some of the issues. Clearly, nobody has uh, any monopoly on the right ideas when it comes to ethics. So uh, it certainly applies in this uh, case as well. We start off with the notion that an attorney occupies a very special place in our world. An attorney is not only a representative of the client that the attorney represents, the attorney is an officer of the court. And according to the model rules of professional conduct, a public citizen having special responsibility for the quality of justice. And so with that in mind, we look at some of the issues that apply to the attorney, not just in the litigation space, but in the settlement space, the bargaining space. Um, what are the sources of ethical guidelines that inform the attorney's conduct in bargaining? Well, we start off clearly with state rules of professional conduct for attorneys. Uh, those who are licensed in that state are subject to those rules, but often overlooked is the fact that those who are admitted pro hoc in those states are also subject in most states to the professional conduct rules applicable to licensed attorneys in the state. Judicial decisions of courts whose ethical rules apply obviously need to be consulted, as are formal opinions and disciplinary rulings of the state ethics committee or commissions that are often published and made available for the bar generally. The model rules of professional conduct of the American Bar Association have been adopted in most states, and those rules are the ones that I'm going to focus on because they're the most universal, universally applicable. And the preamble to those rules say 
that attorneys are to seek, quote, a result advantageous to the client, but consistent with the requirements of honest dealings with others. And we have formal and informal opinions of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Ethics and Professional Responsibility, which are a very good resource for those of you who have ethical quandaries and you need some guidance. It's good to ferret out those formal and informal opinions. Another source that many people may have overlooked but I found incredibly helpful is the ABA Section of Litigation's 2002 publication entitled Ethical Guidelines for Settlement Negotiations. That publication is not binding on ABA members or has not been really adopted, to my knowledge, by states, but it is a very useful uh, handbook, as is the Restatement Third of the Law Governing Lawyers, uh, which has a wealth of ethical guidance for attorneys in the settlement context with uh, case citations and formal and informal ethics opinions, both state and, and um, uh, uh, at the uh, ABA level, to back up some of their restatement principles. So what are some of the areas of concern for advocates? Uh, first of all, as we know from Model Rule 1.1, attorneys must provide competent representation, which means they must have the requisite legal knowledge, skill, thoroughness, and preparation uh, in any matter. And that would mean preparation for a mediation, preparation and thoroughness in preparation for a settlement discussion. An attorney must be mindful, according to Model Rule 1.2a, as to who has the settlement authority. Attorneys in most states have apparent authority to bind clients, but who is the party that really can make the settlement decision? When it's an individual client, uh, then obviously the individual holds the settlement authority. But what about in a corporate context? Attorneys are required to determine who is the ultimate authority within the entity uh, client uh, to approve a settlement. When an insurance company is represented, sometimes the attorney may represent the carrier, sometimes may represent the insured or both, and must be mindful of the obligations of, again, who has the ultimate settlement authority. An attorney is required by Model Rule 1.4D to promptly discuss settlement options. Uh, it is not enough simply to say we're in a litigation, here are the things we can do. An attorney has a duty under the model rules to discuss settlement options, which could include all different forms of alternative dispute resolution, including mediation. By the way, that model rule is reinforced in many of the local rules of bankruptcy courts that obligate attorneys to advise clients of the availability of uh, ADR mechanisms. Who has the right to initiate settlement discussions? Model Rule 1.2a uh, probably is honored in the breach at times by attorneys who have, quote, off-the-record conversations with an adversary counsel and say, gee, by the way, I really don't have any authority to throw this out, but my client might be very well interested in settling if we could get it in the range of X. Uh, those conversations happen. Uh, but without client approval, that is not permitted under the model rules. 
You have the duty as an attorney under Model Rule 1.4a to keep the client informed of any settlement offer, even one that you don't like, even one that may be against your economic interest as a contingency fee attorney. You have the duty to explain it and make clear to the client that that offer has been made. However, the no-contact rule under Model Rule 4.2 prohibits an attorney from contacting an opponent represented by counsel to determine whether a settlement offer has been made uh, or communicated by the attorney to the uh, opponent uh, or uh, the terms of that offer. Of course, the client, uh, the attorney's client, can contact the other person. That's not caught up in the no-contact rule. Can contact the adversary and discover whether or not the adversary is familiar with the settlement proposal. The duty of confidentiality is well known, uh, but oftentimes attorneys can slip into breaches of confidentiality in a negotiation by revealing without client permission the bottom line, uh, where the client's going uh, in the negotiations. There's an exception. Uh, the attorney is permitted but not required to disclose criminal or fraudulent conduct for which the attorney's services were used and can disclose that to the other side. And again, that's permissive and not mandatory. Threats of criminal prosecution uh, was, uh, there was a blanket prohibition in a civil suit of using the threat of criminal prosecution under the old code of professional responsibility. The model rules now say that if the criminal uh, conduct that is threatened is related or arises out of the civil proceeding, then you can actually use the threat of criminal prosecution or reporting uh, as part of a civil negotiation. But bear in mind that extortion statutes under state law may prohibit the very conduct that the model rules could be read to uh, sanction or permit. Attorneys have a duty under Model Rule 8.3a to report unethical behavior, but it's not permitted since that is a mandatory requirement on all of us as attorneys. We are not permitted to use a threat to report uh, in a civil negotiation or agree not to report unethical behavior as part of a settlement. Probably the most uh, debated and controversial area of the model rules when it comes to negotiations is the making of false or misleading statements to an adversary or the non-disclosure to an adversary of material facts. Those are model rules 4.1 and 1.6. And interestingly, the model rules can be construed since they prohibit knowingly making false statements of material facts or law to actually sanction white lies or a little bit of fibbing, certainly puffing and basic dissembling uh, as long as they do not uh, uh, entail material facts or law misstatements uh, are, are countenanced. But we really get into some ethical dilemmas when, in bargaining, we misrepresent our walkaway point or we misrepresent knowingly the value or worth of an object or our own case. 
or we misrepresent our intentions if settlement is not ultimately achieved in the negotiation, or we misrepresent the existence of competing bidders, potential bidders for the very property about which bidding uh, is being or, or a purchase is being negotiated. All of those things are right on the line and sometimes cross over the line, and we have to be very, very careful. The number of times that I've been involved in a mediation and heard a party say, this is my bottom line, only to go lower or a bit higher in the negotiation uh, just moments later. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of those areas that uh, we're often can be guilty of crossing the line. Non-disclosure of material facts is also a difficult problem. Imagine, for example, the situation where uh, an attorney is pleading or a client is pleading poverty, but there's non-disclosure of potential insurance coverage. That non-disclosure not only can get the client in problem with the rescission for non-disclosure of a settlement agreement, which is happening, incidentally, with increasing frequency, the rescission of settlement agreements for non-disclosure, where both the client who failed to disclose and the attorney who knowingly allowed that to occur uh, uh, basically deceived the other party into entering into uh, a uh, entering into the settlement agreement. A settlement that purports to bar counsel from acting in similar cases is prohibited by Model Rule 5.6. The policy underlying that rule is the public has an unfettered right to select counsel, and if counsel uh, who is plaintiff's counsel, for example, in a complex case, uh, can sue again the same defendant for other uh, parties, uh, barring buying off plaintiff's counsel in a settlement is uh, strictly prohibited, although we see it done from time to time, but it is prohibited by Model Rule 5.6. Same thing with the non-cooperation clause under Model Rule 3.4F, where the agreement might provide that the attorney cannot share information with other parties who might be plaintiffs in the future. On the other hand, cooperation clauses, if ethical, can uh, be permissible, a clause that says that you will provide a truthful affidavit or truthful testimony or you will produce certain documents in aid of related or other litigation. That's perfectly permitted. Representing multiple clients in settlement uh, is something that is uh, can be quite um, complex. Model Rule 1.6 makes clear that confidentiality obligations must be adhered to when representing multiple clients. Uh, conflicts of interest must be disclosed and consents, informed consents obtained from all of the multiple clients. Where clients have differing strengths and weaknesses in their cases or capacity to pay in a settlement, uh, those issues have to be disclosed and dealt with uh, by all of the parties that are represented. Similar to representing multiple clients are issues that arise in so-called aggregate settlements, typically where a defendant group is being represented and there is a group settlement for a dollar amount uh, 
And in those situations, the lawyer representing all of the defendants in an aggregate settlement uh, must obtain the informed consent of all of the clients, not just some of them. You can't waive that rule, 1.2a. You can't waive it in advance. And it's interesting to, to note that you can't require uh, in a uh, – client settlement decision, and incidentally, I'm on Rule 1.2a. The prior rule was 1.8g. Sorry about that. In 1.2a, the client's decision controls in a settlement, and a lawyer cannot obtain in advance a veto right over a client's settlement uh, where the attorney's economic interest may be implicated as in a contingency fee. Indeed, where a statutorily imposed fee is sought to be uh, uh, waived in a settlement agreement, the attorney can't nix that. Now, there are opinions that an attorney can provide in a retention letter that if the client waives in settlement the statutorily available attorney's fees, that the attorney can then have a contingency fee interest in the outcome of the case that has been sanctioned in an informal opinion. The disposition of discovery materials uh, is permitted as long as it does not lead to spoliation. Let's turn to drafting of settlement agreements. Attorneys may be surprised that they have an ethical duty if drafting a settlement agreement to faithfully incorporate all of the settlement terms, not dropping out a few that may go unnoticed or that are unfavorable. Indeed, some ethical guidance has ruled that an attorney who receives a settlement draft from the opposing side that omitted a material provision favorable to the other side, the attorney must point that out and disclose to the opponent that the draft had an error that was against the opponent's uh, interests and should be corrected. So. Even in the drafting of a settlement agreement, uh, we're not free to ignore obvious errors that are made by the other side or purposeful errors that we may make in drafting the agreement. So with that, uh, again, this is a quick summary of the uh, ethical guidance applicable to attorneys and the bargaining context. Let's turn to the standards for mediators. Unfortunately, there is a paucity of guidance in this arena. Uh, <clears throat> there are some publications that provide help, uh, but there isn't a lot of guidance yet developed. The local bankruptcy rules in bankruptcy courts um, provide some guidance on topics like disclosure, conflicts of interest, confidentiality, and compensation. And some have incorporated state standards or even the model standards of conduct for mediators, which we'll talk about in just a minute. So look at your local rules. If you're mediating in a state other than your home state, or even in your own home state, look at the bankruptcy rules because they may specify uh, standards that are to apply. Uh, obviously, the ethical rules and guidelines applicable to mediators in the state courts that may be promulgated by the state Supreme Court or regulatory bodies, 
Those can be applicable to you, even though you may be mediating in a bankruptcy context. They may be applicable to you, particularly if you're mediating not only in your home state, but uh, even if you're mediating in uh, a state in which you are not admitted to practice. So it's well advised to become familiar with all of those rules. The rules of professional conduct applicable to attorney mediators may apply, such as rules regarding confidentiality, advertising, fee sharing, and the like. Uh, but in some states, mediation is not deemed to be the practice of law, but it is in others, like Iowa, Mississippi, and New Hampshire, just to name a few. It is considered the practice of law, and the rules of professional conduct are specifically made applicable to mediators. Finally, we get to the best guidance I think that there is, and that's the model standards of conduct for mediators. That was prepared in 1994 and last updated in 2005, a joint project of the ABA, the AAA, and the ABA section of dispute resolution, uh, along with uh, the Association for Conflict Resolution. Uh, it's a very helpful uh, uh, guidance. It's been adopted in a number of states, and several bankruptcy courts have incorporated, incorporated it by reference uh, in their particular rules. So what are some of the issues that are applicable to mediators? And I'm going to use the model standards of conduct as in the outline as the guidance uh, here, since there's precious little other guidance. Uh, party self-determination uh, is the number one rule in the model standards. Uh, uh, Self-determination means a party's voluntary, uncoerced, informed decision to settle or not to settle without undue influence from the mediator or third parties. You can't order a party to settle uh, in a mediation, and you shouldn't. a mediator shouldn't unduly influence uh, parties, particularly unrepresented parties. Indeed, in some jurisdictions, the local rules of the bankruptcy court or the state court may oblige the mediator to explain to the parties in advance of the mediation the right of self-determination and make sure they understand it. And that leads to the question of whether or not an evaluative mediator style is permitted or not. Some state standards prohibit an evaluative form of mediation. They prohibit a mediator from expressing an opinion or making recommendations. Some local bankruptcy rules actually uh, contemplate uh, that the mediator can and indeed should in certain instances make recommendations, make a settlement recommendation, uh, and the parties receiving it or counsel receiving it are obliged to pass that on to their clients, the, the mediator's recommendation or the so-called mediator proposal. That becomes a dicey thing uh, to do with unrepresented parties, but... Uh, fairly common in most bankruptcy jurisdictions for represented parties or sophisticated parties in complex matters. Conflicts of interest and disclosure are dealt with in uh, the model standards. Uh, full disclosure, informed consent, and a continuing duty to disclose as matters become known to the mediator that should be the subject of, of disclosure. The duty of confidentiality is a duty that also is one that the parties must be made aware of in advance of the mediation. 
the duty of confidentiality permeates the entire mediation communication process, not just during the mediation conference itself, but also before and after until the mediation is uh, concluded. The duty of confidentiality includes uh, no communication with the bankruptcy court uh, regarding uh, the results or the uh, events that have occurred in the mediation, save and accept those things that the uh, local rule may require, such as whether the matter settled or not. Uh, this implicates a very controversial issue about whether a mediator uh, may report alleged bad faith uh, negotiation tactics in a mediation by a third party. I think that's pretty dangerous to do unless it's ordered by the court or made part of the local rules uh, uh, because obviously uh, that is a bit of a subjective evaluation. Parties are not obliged to settle. Uh, and if they don't engage in uh, uh, a mediation in good faith, disclosing that without court order or local rule may be uh, a, a bit dangerous for the mediator. Mediators have a duty of impartiality. That's a duty to avoid not only partiality in the conduct of the mediation, but the appearance of partiality. And a, while a mediator can have ex parte contacts with the parties, uh, that's permissive. It is not permissible, for example, for a mediator to accept a gift or favor. Uh, uh, and one area of partiality or impartiality that comes up is suppose you're in the, uh, in the midst of a, of a mediation and you discover that a party has overlooked an applicable statute of limitations. Are you permitted to tell that party gee, you've overlooked this, uh, or are you permitted to tell the other side, uh, I'm not telling your opponent that the statute of limitations has run, but if they discover it, you have the possibility of losing your case. That might be a meritorious defense if it's timely raised. So those kinds of issues uh, can come up uh, in the course of a caucus or a bargaining discussion. And by the way, that implicates the issue of if I tell as a mediator a lawyer for the other side that the statute of limitations run, have I thrust upon that attorney a duty to disclose a material fact or law to the other side under another prong of the ethics uh, rules that we've already discussed? Mediator competence is uh, required by the model standards. Competence not only in how to run a mediation, but con competence in the subject area of the mediation. And to that end, mediators should make available their background information and experience as mediators to the parties. And this, of course, gives rise to the question as to whether or not non-attorneys uh, are, and in what situations they may be, competent to serve in a mediator role. Bankruptcy uh, rules in many jurisdictions contemplate explicitly the use of non-attorney mediators, so that's not the issue whether they can be used. The issue is when and in, under what circumstances it would be appropriate for a non-attorney to participate, either alone or in conjunction with an attorney mediator. The model standards require 
withdrawal from or termination of a mediation in certain contexts. They may include the bad health of a party or the mediator, uh, conflicts of interest that are discovered and cannot be waived. But importantly, when it is necessary to prevent fraud that the mediator, due to confidentiality constraints, is not permitted to disclose. And that's a tough one. When you know as a mediator that a party is being hoodwinked, being defrauded uh, by a non-disclosure, for example, of a material fact or law, at what point must the mediator either require the other party, not require, but persuade the other party uh, implicated in the uh, Ill, uh, bad conduct to make the disclosure or simply declare an impasse or declare the mediation terminated without explanation. Now, the subject sometimes comes up whether a mediator uh, in a failed mediation may subsequently serve as an arbitrator of the same dispute. The model standards take the position normally no. But some local bankruptcy rules, like in Delaware, say it's okay if you do so with an explanation that you as the mediator may have received confidential information and that you cannot help but be influenced as the ultimate arbiter of the unsettled dispute by that confidential information. So parties should be forewarned and well advised that whatever they have told the mediator no longer becomes confidential in the sense that the mediator might not take it into consideration in making a final judgment as an arbitrator. Um, drafting settlement documents uh, is uh, something that doesn't normally come up in the context of a sophisticated party uh, settlement where the parties are represented by competent counsel, but it can. It can come up in the context where the parties just, even though they've settled, are so distrustful of one another that they can't even trust one side to prepare the first draft. So they say to the mediator, will you prepare the first draft and we'll take it from there. We just want to get, that's the only way we'll really uh, get to yes if they haven't actually documented a complex settlement at the mediation conference itself. But bear in mind, as a mediator, that some local rules, for example, the rules in Washington State, bar a mediator ever from drafting the settlement agreement. Other states allow it. Some bankruptcy uh, uh, rules actually, local bankruptcy rules address it. But if you undertake the task of drafting a settlement document, you better make sure you're, one, competent, two, that you incorporate all of the terms the parties have agreed to, three, you should be aware that this is a fertile source of mediator liability, and mediators are increasingly being sued for a whole host of issues, first and foremost, rescission, of settlement agreements where the mediator knew of an undisclosed fact, and the other one is the drafting of settlement agreements where the mediator uh, overlooks a tax issue or an important issue to a party. And then there's the unauthorized practice of law. If you are 
uh, drafting a settlement agreement as a licensed attorney in New York, but the settlement document is governed by the laws of the state of Texas, you're going to have some problems potentially unless you have competent counsel who are going to pick up the ball from the first draft. Uh, the unauthorized practice of law obviously reappears for non-attorneys who may undertake to draft term sheets or settlement documentation that is intended to be binding and have a legal effect. Turning now to mediator compensation quickly, and I'm going to hurry through the rest of this to save time for questions. Uh, mediator compensation should be fully disclosed in writing, the nature and extent of it, the allocation of responsibility for payment. Uh, no referral fees are permitted uh, under most uh, ethics codes and the standards uh, model standards, and contingency fee arrangements are pretty much universally prohibited for mediators. Post-mediation conflicts of interest that may arise is a topic that is uh, uh, troubling to many mediators who still practice in law firms. Uh, the answer generally, and these are general rules subject to a lot of uh, exceptions, no, you can't represent a party in a substantially related matter after the conclusion of a mediation, whether or not it settles. No, you may not represent a party uh, even with uh, uh, the parties, uh, all parties' consent if the integrity of the process could reasonably be called into question, the integrity of the mediation process. It's okay generally to represent a party to a mediation subsequently in an unrelated matter. And the whole issue of future waivers, a waiver in your mediation agreement of conflicts in the future is something that has uh, been, uh, a lot has been written on and there is a wide difference of opinion as to what works. Document retention and disposition, um, there are very few rules. The mediation agreement uh, should address when you can destroy documents that you've received or return them to the appropriate party who provided the documents. Ethics and marketing is governed by the model standards of conduct. Uh, obviously, false and misleading advertisements are uh, prohibited. Uh, all unauthorized disclosures of mediation uh, uh, cases that you've handled uh, that would violate confidentiality rules are prohibited. Puffing uh, statements uh, that all of your cases settle or uh, trying to uh, hold yourself out as uh, uh, the best or the brightest of the mediation community uh, would probably get you in trouble. But getting letters of reference from people for whom you have conducted a mediation is not considered a gift or a favor that would otherwise be prohibited. We've talked about the unauthorized practice of law. Uh, those are issues not only for attorneys who are not admitted in a particular jurisdiction to practice and have not been appointed by a court or their retention approved by the court, but also clearly an issue for non-attorneys, uh, even though uh, in many jurisdictions mediation is not considered the practice of law. You've got big problems in North Carolina and Virginia where uh, that uh, clearly is uh, problematical. Finally, ethical guidance for the mediator where you have questions, there are authorities to go to. You can go to uh, the state uh, alternative dispute resolution authorities. And the ABA section of dispute resolution has a website that you can go to and pose questions 
and get some very thoughtful responses from uh, people who are well-schooled in this arena. So I'm sorry for going so quickly, and I hope this has been a, a, a basic overview for you. And I'll turn it over now to Judy to see if there are any questions or people who have comments or observations. Judy? Or anybody on the phone if they have a Yes, question. I'm on the phone. I'm sorry. I had my thumb muted. Um, I guess my question is confidentiality is a big part of this. And there are circumstances where that becomes, um, how do I want to say, uh, difficult um, or difficult, especially if the mediator is asked um, by the court on certain things. And I think there's been some some things in the recent cases on that. Can you speak more towards where confidentiality um, may become an issue and how mediators and advocates can um, protect themselves and protect their clients from that situation? Judy, where the advocates can protect themselves or the mediator or both? I think it's, I think it's important... Uh, I, I like to address the issue of confidentiality in the mediation agreement that I ask the parties to sign, whether it's a court-mandated uh, uh, mediation or a voluntary mediation, by which the parties agree they're not going to call me as a witness, subpoena my notes, uh, and if a third party were to do so, uh, which has happened, that they will pay the expenses, uh, I'll give them advance notice. Uh, and endeavor to uh, forewarn them so they can uh, seek whatever protective orders uh, they may want. But while the parties uh, can agree amongst themselves on confidentiality, um, in an unrelated case, there's a big difference of authority as to whether or not the mediation confidentiality rule applies to bar a third party from getting discovery of what occurred in an unrelated case, what occurred in a mediation. Uh, in federal court, there's a federal mediation privilege, which may help, but in state court, in some states, there's not the same uh, degree of protection against discovery. It's an evidentiary rule. It's not a uh, exemption from discovery by a third party. So the mediation agreement can be very helpful to the parties, I think, and the mediator in spelling out a broad-based confidentiality. And to follow up on that, when you are actively involved in the mediation and you meet with one party in caucus and then come back um, with the other party, how much of what was said would you feel comfortable disclosing to the other party in order to move the discussion along? And where should you draw the line in that aspect? Wow, that is a uh, that is a great question, and that is something that I think all conscientious mediators struggle with. What I like to do is, um, when a party asks me to deliver a message, I am very careful to repeat the message that they want me to deliver, and then. I ask them whether I can add this color or that. Can I tell them this as background or color? 
and sometimes they may say yes, and sometimes they may they may say no. But inevitably, in in a mediation, when I deliver the mail to the other side, they may say, "Well, what was their body language like? Where do you, where, where where do you think they're going with this? How how much farther can we go?" And those are questions that are tempting to answer, but you just can't, and you have to be cognizant of disclosing something that would disadvantage another side, even if you think it would promote a settlement. It's a very difficult issue. I want to encourage people on the line that if they have a question for Ed, please push star six, and that will or, unmute your line. Yeah, or if you just want to weigh in with your own contrary <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> or, hey, or where you uh, had a Ed? situation. Hi, this is Ray Lyons, Ed. How are you? Fine, Ray. How are you? Good. Um, could you comment on the uh, ethical uh, issues that come up for a mediator who uh, has gotten repeat appointments for mediation engagements through the same lawyer and whether that um, uh, presents an appearance of favoritism uh, towards that lawyer in the um, who's been a repeat uh, advocate in mediations conducted by a particular mediator? That's a great question, uh, Ray. And I, my, and and again, there's not a lot of guidance. I believe that at the very inception of your being considered as a mediation candidate, you should disclose that. Uh, and likely, my experience is, likely the other side in recommending you will have said, I have used Judge Lyons in a number of cases with good results. We respect his manner of conducting the mediation and we would really urge your favorable consideration of him. And and normally that is what the parties have already done for you, and then when the other side uh, contacts you and does an interview, you can disclose orally and then ultimately in writing, look, I've done five or six cases for this same firm or for this same client, uh, I don't believe that colors my ability to be a neutral, but you should know that. And then let the parties decide. Can I ask a follow-up question on what Judge Lyons asked, if I may? Yes. And that is, if you're appointed a mediator uh, and you're on a list of mediators for a certain matter and um, the estate is allowed to pick the mediators off that list, and the estate picks you multiple times, it's a little bit awkward. Um, and I have found myself bending over backwards to try to be neutral. And I, and I say at the mediation, and I say before the mediation, you know, I'm on this roster of mediators. They pick me. Um, I'm very aware of that. I want you to be very aware of that. Um, and I make every effort uh, to be neutral. Um, and I think that I maintain my neutrality. But notwithstanding all of that, it is still, and I've heard stories, uh, you know, where if someone is feeding you, um, you bend over 
either intentionally or unintentionally, to the will of that party, uh, and you may lose your objectivity knowingly or unknowingly. So what do you do in that circumstance? Well, I don't know that I have a, a particularly good answer. I think one disclosure is obvious, and you've said you do that. And the other is, if you do not feel in your heart of hearts that you can be impartial, even though it may be inimicable to your financial interest not to be engaged, you do have a duty. If you don't believe you can be impartial, you have a duty to pass. Um, but I think that I think that most people are very impressed with a full and honest disclosure. You know, somebody told me one time when I was disclosing as an arbitrator, the things that you most that are most important for you to disclose are the things that you'd rather not. And <laughs> so if you can put it down and say, I have gotten a lot of cases from this estate and I may get more. And you should know that there is the appearance that I may be getting rewarded for mediation results that tend to favor the estate. However you want to say it, I think people respect your honesty and the fact that no one is completely debiased. Nobody goes into any mediation tabula rasa. We come in with our own prejudices, but the fact that we recognize them and that we're willing to talk about them and out them, that means that makes people's respect that you are going to bend over backwards to be neutral. So uh, it's probably not a satisfactory answer, but well, it, I think it, it, it was actually a satisfactory answer because it's the best we can do. Yep, it is. And I appreciate that. Okay, it's one of the, you know, uh, I needed a reality test, you know, and I think uh, you've been very helpful in that regard. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Other questions or comments? Please feel free to disagree with anything I've said. <laughs> well, on behalf of the Mediation Committee and the Bankruptcy Litigation Committee, we thank you so much, Ed, for taking the time to go through these ethical um, considerations for both advocates and mediators. It's been extremely helpful. And again, I encourage everyone to look at our survey results and learn from each other. Um, it was very enlightening how um, our members approached um, the questions, and they were a really good checklist to keep in mind before you go into a mediation. And I do hope that the dialogue continues between both the Bankruptcy Litigation Committee and the Mediation Committee um, members going forward. And I thank everyone for um, participating on the call, and you, Ed, especially, for your guidance and um, expertise. Thank you.